You're listening to episode 170 of the Rebel Buddhist Podcast, where we talk about what happens to a dream deferred. Welcome to the Rebel Buddhist Podcast, where we explore how to use the science of psychology, Eastern spiritual practices like mindfulness and compassion, and the game-changing work of self-coaching so you can free your mind and free your life. I'm your host, Anna Verzoni. Hey, hey, Rebels. Oh my gosh, you all have been so patient with me recording all these from my iPhone. <laughs> the sound quality is, I'm, I'm assuming it's super different than when I do it at like my, my little office in Anchorage that has all this sound stuff and the right mic. So anyway, I hope that it's sounding okay. But once again, I am recording on my iPhone because I've been on the road most of the summer. So just thank you. Thank you for being so gracious about that and so patient about it. Anyway, before I dive into this very personal topic of a dream deferred I first wanted to take a moment of silence to think about our Ohana on Maui who are suffering deeply. You know, I've been holding this tragedy of the Maui fires alongside the fact that I'm here on the big island to celebrate my 50th birthday with my daughter and friends. And it's been a very human experience of paradoxes. When we first arrived on Oahu, I heard about fires on the big island and was offering to help people I knew who had to evacuate. I had a few friends who had to evacuate as well as people who were only like 15 minutes from the fires on the big island. And by the time I woke up the next day, the fires on Maui had gotten out of control and devastated Lahaina and other parts of the county. And Hawaii has been a place of healing for many, myself included. It literally saved my life when I was suffering from severe seasonal affective disorder and in a deep depression. It's helped so many of my clients that had ventured here to learn from the wilderness, nature, the aina, and the aloha of the Hawaiian people. It's the home to the Kanaka for millennia, and it's also been a place of celebration and pivotal moments in others' lives, right? Like baby moons, weddings, celebrations of life, proposals, family reunions, ceremonies, so many things. And I personally donated to different groups and I've put a link in the show notes to help donate what you can uh, to the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, uh, Kako'o Maui Fund at hawaiiancouncil.org. And every dollar is matched. So it's a great local and trusted organization that gives more directly to local community members with an emphasis on Native Hawaiians. And there are many other organizations you can donate to as well, but this is one I felt was vetted and in alignment with my values. That's hawaiiancouncil.org. So I wanted to take a moment of silence to honor those on Maui, the Aina, the suffering people and other beings suffering that they're experiencing, you know, pets and the wild animals and the plants, as well as honoring the sense of community and support that's there, such a deep part of Hawaiian culture. So let's just take a moment of silence and think about the people in the aina and holding them in our hearts.
Okay. Thank you for doing that with me. So as I was saying, I've been holding this tragedy along the fact that I'm here on the big island to celebrate my 50th birthday with my daughter. And I was able to fly a woman here who helped me with my doctoral project in Nepal. She's from the Dolpo region of Nepal. Um, as I flew her here as a graduation present because she finished her master's degree at the University of Washington in global public health. And she's headed back to Nepal in September. So I wanted her to experience the aloha here. I think about how in 2010, I was in Asheville, North Carolina at a business mastermind, not knowing shit about entrepreneurship, not ever having had any family who had a business or anything. And my business coach said to us, write down a dream that seems totally impossible right now, but that you would be absolutely thrilled about or or something like that. And I found it really hard. And she was like, it's okay, dream big. And I wrote down, I totally remember this, I will have a house in the mountains and a house on the beach. And now it's happened. It's crazy. I mean, that seemed fucking crazy even then to someone whose family always rented and got booted every few years when the landlord wanted to raise the rent or to create space for a family member. And I had a deep sense of not being grounded, not having a true home or security in that way. So it made sense why choosing to live out of my Volvo station wagon for seven years as a climbing guide was super comfortable for me. I was used to moving around, but at least this way, everything I owned was in my car and it wasn't as disruptive when I had to change spots and all that. But I'll never forget the difficulty of actually allowing myself to wish for that dream to begin with. It was almost painful. There was so much resistance, right? So much fear. And I found this fascinating. And over the years as an entrepreneur, I realized I was experiencing a fear of disappointment, a fear of once again, wishing for something and the pain of not having it materialize. What was that about? And here's a poem that has had a powerful impact on me since I was a teenager, Harlem by Langston Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up? like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? You know, this poem asks, what happens to a vision or hope of a community when this vision or hope is repeatedly put off? or delayed? Will it wither away and shrivel up? Will it rot away or become like sticky candy that gets all crusty and crystallized? Or will this unfulfilled dream weigh us down as we have to continue to bear it not being fulfilled? Or maybe the dream will explode outward with energy and potency, right? Demanding to be seen and accounted for. Now, he wrote Harlem in 1951. This was more than a decade before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And it was also written in the aftermath of the 1935 and 1943 Harlem riots, both of which were triggered by segregation, unemployment, police brutality in the Black community. And his poem responds to this. So while the dream in the poem could be any dream that those in Harlem have had, 
for a better life, opportunity, equality, or just the American dream itself. I can refer to a collective dream as well as to individual dreams, right? Because they're intricately woven together. And in the larger social context, this dream has been put off specifically by racist institutions and in other groups by other oppressive systems, right? So this poem makes it clear, however, that a dream deferred by injustice doesn't simply disappear, right? The dream has to be accounted for sooner or later because inevitably there's some kind of societal reckoning as the dreamers claim what's rightfully theirs. These dreams that we have don't just go away when we refuse to think about them, right? When we defer them. So I don't want to dilute the potency of the social justice roots and implications of this poem. I also want to address how the wisdom within it extends to our own dreams for ourselves and our communities and what happens when we don't allow ourselves to actualize them or even dream them in the first place. Deferring a dream may lessen the dream itself, right? making it feel more impossible as it kind of fades away from our awareness. Maybe it'll spoil, lose potency or decay. Maybe this is the outcome of racist systems, right? Of other oppressive systems, hoping to maintain the status quo. These oppressive systems want the dreams to be forgotten. So in addition to racist systems, I think it's also part of a capitalist society that tells us nothing will ever be enough and we won't ever be enough. And it encourages us to stay in a place of fear so that we buy to compensate for our insecurities, especially if you grow up poor in a capitalist society like I did. The fear of dreaming in a society where the odds are stacked against you, right? It's also part of a patriarchal society that tells people socialized as women that we aren't allowed to even have our own dreams. And this poem conveys what it might feel like to have a dream that can't be realized because of injustice. And for me, it brings up why I often didn't dream. I didn't want to feel the burden of a dream unfulfilled. I'd seen so many of my friends and family not succeed in their dreams because of these systems. I was terrified of wanting too much. But then there's the last line, or does it explode? Right? This could be in reference to the Harlem riots. It could also refer to the explosion of the dream itself, like exposing more hollow dreams as false. But it shifts us away from these images of a dream withering away or festering and all of that. These are all experiences that would impact those most targeted by injustice to an image of the dream exploding outward, right? That whenever we have these dreams deferred by oppressed people, that it will have societal implications. All of society has to reckon with the dream deferred, right? So this is a powerful poem that inspires me to invite us all to ask about like what happens to a dream deferred, to our dream deferred. 
when I was first starting out, I felt like, wow, I just want to kind of show myself that I can even be wealthy. Like the idea of being wealthy was so foreign and my spirituality even taught me to like renounce material things, right? But y'all, I was like, I kind of want to have something to renounce, right? Now, over a decade later, my dream is to be able to renounce it all, to pay off the debt, to be financially free, to live simply and abundantly. Because y'all know how much I've been to school. That shit ain't free, right? But I would love to be able to live a life where I and my community are living with enough and feeling safe and connected. And when I'm coaching and invite my clients to dream, We hold space for all types of dreams. There's not just pressure to have just like noble dreams, right? By all means, if you can release attachment to the dream, dream for whatever the fuck you want. If you like your reasons, the suffering begins when we become attached to our dreams. You know, and when my clients try to dream, often I see the same hesitation. And when I invite them to envision a soul aligned job or business, a beautiful home to house their family and host friends, true intimacy with the lover, a world that respects the earth and her gifts, a sense of safety and peace and calm to finally forgive and be free, to wake up excited about life again. It's not unusual for me to hear, I, I, I can't do it. I can't even imagine that. It's wild, right? If we're lucky enough to even know what we want most, we can still be unwilling to even imagine the possibility that we can manifest it. And I'm sure you've heard Marianne Williamson's quote, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Well, maybe at some point that's true, but I've often found that first we cross the threshold of the fear that we'll fail then we might actually get to the fear of the responsibility that comes with the achievement, right? But we're often afraid of being disappointed. We fear the shame that might follow. We fear the barrage of shit talking from our inner critic. Like, see, I knew you weren't good enough. Or, ha, who do you think you are that you even thought that was possible for you? Or it's because you don't deserve it or you're not worthy, right? So where does this fear of disappointment even come from? So as we can see, it's actually rooted in what we make it mean about ourselves if we were to fail, if the dream wasn't to be actualized. That's all that barrage of criticism, of self-criticism. It's what we're making it mean about who we are if we fail. And this often comes from things our caregivers or other family, friends, teachers, and others said to us as we were growing up as we were having to choose, like we spoke about a couple episodes ago, between loving ourselves for who we are and living it into the world authentically versus needing intimacy, protection, and love from others as we vulnerably made our way through life as children. Or maybe even later in life, if we were in like pivotal relationships along the way. So however, as I said earlier, deferring a dream or not even allowing ourselves to dream to begin with, often starts with socialization. Being immersed in a capitalist consumerist culture, a patriarchal and racist system, misogynistic, white supremacy, ageism, ableism, homophobia, transforming, all of these systems of oppression try to tell us that we can't do it. 
that we might as well not even try, that we'll be taken down if we make an attempt, that we shouldn't dream so big or expect too much. They tell us and try to remind us over and over that dreaming is for others. Not just the dream of social justice that Langston Hughes can be, but even the individual dreams we have in our own lives, which is why they are interconnected. So first, we need to be able to even dream it, imagine it. Then we get to the task of believing that we can create it. So the act of dreaming, my friends, is an act of rebellion. The act of believing that we can create our dreams is an act of rebellion. So let's start with the dream. Imagine it now. What do you dream for your people, for your precious life on this planet? Don't try to be noble. Allow yourself to want what you want. Investigate if it'll truly bring you happiness. And even if you know it won't, do you like your reasons? Like when I wanted my house in the mountains and a house on the beach, I liked my reasons, even though they weren't so noble, like to build a nonprofit meditation center, which is now one of my new dreams. But we can want and dream. We can release attachment to them and not make it mean anything about who we are if, for some reason, the dream doesn't become a reality. We all have our own definition of freedom, our own life experiences that provide the context for our dreams and desires. We owe it to our people and to ourselves to allow ourselves to imagine it, to dream it, If we can't imagine it, it can't be a possibility. So we must begin there. And if you're ready to unpack all the ways your life experiences thus far have kept you from dreaming, from true happiness, from believing that you deserve it and can create it, get on the wait list, y'all, for the next cohort of the Adventure Mastermind. We remove unhelpful patterns using wilderness, adventure, plant medicine, mindfulness, and more. So head over to adventuremastermind.com. And no matter what, begin to dream. Continue to dream. That is where it all starts. If you like what you heard, spread the love and share it. And if you want to learn more about how to free your mind and free your life, check out rebelbuddhist.com and grab my free Rebel Buddhist training kit where you'll receive a video training on cultivating resilience, a copy of the gorgeous Rebel Buddhist Manifesto, and more. That's rebelbuddhist.com.